In just a minute, Jen is going to come up and read our passage for the morning, but I want to give you a quick heads up on some background here. Um, In a few minutes, we're going to be exploring the resurrection accounts in the Gospel of John. But before John sat down to write his gospel, before he sat down to put pen to paper, he had a central purpose for his writing the book. And we find it in the closing paragraph of his book. It says this, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John recorded what he recorded with intentionality to preserve the historical reality of God become man. He wrote so that seekers and believers alike could understand the reality and the ramifications behind the life and death of Jesus Christ. So it's vital for us this morning to keep John's overall purpose in our minds as we kind of explore the very end of his gospel. His overall purpose is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So uh, for some of us, I pray that the match that we strike today in John 19 and 20 that Jen will read for us will be like the match that strikes uh, the flame of faith in your heart. For the rest of us who already do believe, I pray that your heart is warmed, the coals of your heart are warmed to burn brighter and hotter with fresh confidence in Jesus. So Jen is going to come read for us now 769 words. According to John, the collective weight of these 769 words ought to either stir up new faith in us or confirm the faith that we already have. Does the life of this man from an obscure Middle Eastern town actually matter today? Yes. And with the Spirit's help, the Apostle John and I want to prove it to you this morning. It is a little bit longer of a text today, so buckle in. Um, this is riveting, though. It shouldn't be too hard to buckle in today. So come on over, Jen, and read this text for us. So this morning, we'll be reading from John chapter 19, starting in verse 31, through John chapter 20, verse 18. If you are looking in the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 906. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, 
who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried away him away, tell me, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. In her April 2022 New York Times essay, Margaret Renkel said something profoundly disturbing. She said this, reading stories is a gentle way for a child to encounter the hardest truth that shadows mortal life. There are no happy endings. Is she right? Are happy endings in movies and books a scammy way to prevent kids from encountering the hard and grievous realities of life that we come to know as adults. Does anyone actually live happily ever after? This morning I want to persuade us that the answer to this question is a definitive, hopeful, unassailable yes. And I want to persuade us by exploring the claim that a man from an obscure town in the Middle East who died a violent death but rose to live a victorious life has bearing on us even today, April 9th, 2023. We don't have time to explore the full Jesus story today, so we'll start in the last moments of his life and then talk about what happened next. So go to Calvary in your mind's eye, what you know of that story, perhaps you're new to it or perhaps you've heard it a million times, but in your mind's eye, go to that hillside. See that hill, that skull-shaped mountainside through the prophet Isaiah's eyes. He says, Jesus' appearance, so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, despised, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, wounded. If you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, those words written by Isaiah were written 700 years before Jesus, and yet there is no doubt that this was written in reference to Jesus. Remember, John has written that we might believe. That's his purpose for writing this book. And so specifically, he's written that we might believe that Jesus is the long-prophesied Messiah, Messiah that's spoken about here in Isaiah. So I'm gonna follow John's lead here and see if we can really carefully determine if Jesus is really worthy of our belief. So, number one today, Jesus' control before death makes him worthy of your belief. Jesus' control before death makes him worthy of your belief. So let's find out why. So look with me down at chapter 19 again. Look at verse 31. <clears throat> Tells us that it was the day of preparation. This would have been Friday, the same day Jesus would die. Jesus died when dusk was nearing, and the Jewish Sabbath started at dusk, at sundown. So the Sabbath was quickly approaching. Jesus is dying, Sabbath is approaching. Why does this matter, and how does it demonstrate Jesus' control? 
Well, the normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross all the way up until they died. Sometimes this could take days. The Jews that crucified Jesus had some serious religious concerns about leaving him up on the cross. So they needed to get the bodies off of the tree because the Sabbath was coming, and they had an Old Testament law to be sensitive to, especially on a Sabbath. So Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 provides a helpful backdrop here. It says this, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day. So ironically, you've got this same group who just unjustly murdered Jesus, now seeking to fulfill the letter of the law here, getting Jesus off the cross before it's too late, before dusk and so before the beginning of the Sabbath. Occasionally, if there was a reason to hasten death, the Romans had discovered this really barbaric way to accelerate death. So look at verse 31. They go to Pilate and they ask him to have Pilate's cronies break the legs of those on the cross, crosses. The soldiers would take this heavy iron hammer and they would just smash the legs of the cross victims. Well, apart from the shock value and the, uh, the additional loss of blood, this step would prevent the victim from sort of being able to push up on a ledge at the bottom of the cross or against their, the, the, the nails that are in their feet. It would prevent them from being able to push up and fill their lungs with air again. And so after they smashed the leg bones, the victims wouldn't be able to push up anymore and they would die from asphyxia. I read of one crucifixion skeleton that was discovered in 1968. It showed evidence of a male whose right leg was completely shattered, down here, and whose left leg was severely fractured too. Clear evidence that the Roman hammer inflicted its violent damage. So Pilate agrees to their request to get the bodies off the crosses to hasten their death. So he sends his soldiers out to do this violent work with the iron hammer. Well, apparently, they work from the outside in to Jesus in the center cross because the two men on either side of Jesus were still living and they had their legs smashed in verse 32. But when they get to Jesus, they don't smash his because he was already dead. So in verse 33, they do not break his bones. So what? Uh, an incidental historical detail, right? What's the big deal? Well, Jesus' jaw-dropping dominion is on display right here in this small detail. Jesus controlled when he would die. And let me show you what I mean. Uh, as soon as that last sin, sin, <coughs> excuse me, sin was paid for, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. And then John's description of what happens next is peculiar. Look at verse 30. He says, he gave up his spirit. Jesus' death wasn't just violent, though it was. It was voluntary. When you and I die one day, it will not be because we surrender our lives. Our lives will be taken from us, whether from disease or age or accident or, or something else, but not so with Jesus. It's, it's hard to tell on the surface here of our English translation, but John uses a really unusual verb to describe this. Uh, this verb doesn't really mean to give up, as it's probably rendered in most of our translations that we have in our laps right now or in our hands. Instead, I think this handover verbiage that's used here would actually be closer to what is, uh, I think handover would actually be closer to what is actually reflected in the Greek here. Nowhere in all of Greek literature, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, nowhere else in all of Greek literature is this verb used to reference death other than right here. He gave over his life. He handed it over. Jesus is the only one in history who could voluntarily give up his spirit and decide when to do it. So John is hinting that even at his death, Jesus is exercising control, choosing when he'd suck in oxygen for the last time. Jesus wasn't giving up. He was giving himself. So he bowed his head and surrendered his life just then. Why? To alleviate his misery? To just get the whole thing over with? No. He handed over his spirit when he did so that he might fulfill ancient prophecy in the scriptures. Look down at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And what scripture fulfilled? Not one of his bones will be broken. Well, 
What is Jesus fulfilling here? Numbers 9, 9 to 12 say this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, he shall keep the Passover to the Lord. They shall eat it, the Passover lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall not break any of its bones. Or here's Exodus 12, verse 46. It's the Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house and you shall not break any of its bones. Jesus died when he died intentionally. He set the whole thing up from the beginning. If you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, Exodus, Exodus was written 1,300 years before Jesus. And if the Jewish celebration of Passover is a bit unfamiliar to you, well, it's a story for another time, but very briefly, the Passover lamb's blood was shed to save a life, which is what Jesus was doing for us. The Passover lamb's blood shed to save a life. Sounds familiar in the Jesus story. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So by Jesus handing over his life prior to his bones being broken, he is claiming to be the final Passover lamb whose bones would not be broken, but whose blood would be shed to cover the sins of his people. Hanging on any longer would have given cause for that Roman hammer to come crashing down onto Jesus' legs and would drive the final nail into our own spiritual coffins, shattering our hopes of redemption. The Passover lamb had to be perfect. No brokenness allowed at all. This is what Jesus is claiming by dying when he died. The perfect, no bones broken, Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus' control before death makes him worthy of your belief. But there's something else here interesting too. Number, to, number two, Jesus' control after death makes him worthy of your belief. Historically speaking, it's not clear why the soldiers, one of the soldiers, takes a spear there in verse 34, if you look, and drives it into the side of Jesus. Maybe it was just to ensure that he really was dead. I don't know, maybe it was for some sick grins. Maybe it was, I don't know what it was for, who knows. But Jesus' blood, when he does it, flows with blood and then something else comes out, what appears to be water with the blood. And John includes one other detail here that should drive the roots of our faith even deeper into the soil of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 37. It says this, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So it's almost as if John is here saying, and if you haven't gotten it yet, it, let me just clarify for you again, the one that we've all been waiting for, it's Jesus. And I'm writing this to you so that you believe like I do. What is he quoting there in verse 37 of chapter 19? Well, he's quoting Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. When they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. If you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, Zechariah was written 600 years before Jesus. So obviously, when John is quoting this text, he's especially focusing in on the piercing that Jesus received in his side and the prophetic fulfillment that he's witnessing right there in that moment as he views the cross. A few verses later, Zechariah, remember written 600 years before Jesus, unpacks the impact of that puncture wound in the side of Jesus. He says this, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The pierced side will flow with cleansing blood, is what Zechariah is saying and what John is seeing right in front of him. John wants there to be no mistaking Jesus' identity. He is the long-promised Messiah. He is the final Passover lamb. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Putting all these little details together gives Paul the liberty to say in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, Jesus died by the book. Every last detail by the book, just as it had been written hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before. 
Just imagine the, like, the meticulous, dialed-in control Jesus had to have had and had to be able to wield from that cross to ensure that he died at just the right time so that his bones would not be smashed to be our Passover lamb and so that instead his side would be pierced to, f- uh, to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. Medically speaking, what John is describing here was blood uh, here was blood flowing out of Jesus' heart mixed with fluid that comes from the pericardial sac. If you are in medicine, and I'm not saying it right, dude, it's what the commentators said, okay? So I'm, I'm going off of what they said. Don't correct me, or you can correct me afterwards, but just not right now, okay? The blood from Jesus' heart mixed with fluid from the pericardial sac, which is the tissue that surrounds the heart. If the chest cavity of a human being has been experiencing trauma, if it's just been beaten and bruised, like Jesus was, but not punctured, fluid starts to gather, and it separates itself from the blood. I'm not making eye contact with David Clifford right now. (laughs) And so outflows blood in what looks like water, though it was actually the serum that had collected in Jesus' chest. This is a verified medical reality. John isn't speaking poetically here. He's making the point that Jesus was all the way dead. You see, when John was writing this account, years after these events, there was some major misinformation going around. Fake news, if you will. I was going to do Trump's accent, but Miriam told me not to, so I didn't. (laughs) This fake news had a name. Uh, The fake news was called docetism. Docetists denied that Jesus was truly a man. They claimed that he only seemed to take on human form. And so because of this, he didn't really die, it just appeared that way. But John would have none of that. He knew that without the shedding of human blood, there is no forgiveness for human sin. Jesus was really human and really died, and John takes gory pains to ensure that we know this. This teaching of the Docetists is still alive today, believe it or not. One example is found in the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith, which is generally favorable toward Jesus. They like Jesus, but it falls way, way short of orthodoxy. In the Quran, it says, in Surah An-Nisa 157, it says this, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him. John wants us to know that this is a lie, and he takes pains to confirm it. Look at verse 35. He who saw this has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. He wasn't half dead. He wasn't fake dead. He wasn't not human. It wasn't an actor made to look like Jesus. God took on flesh and made his dwelling among us so that he might accomplish redemption for us. And so now John is going to tell us how Jesus is transitioned from the cross into his burial site. And the devil's in the details here, so pay attention. Or maybe I should say the devil would love nothing more than to keep you from the details here. So pay attention. Because right here, there's more proof that Jesus is worthy of your belief. John opens the next scene in verse 38 with a brand new player, one that was played brilliantly this last Friday night, I must say, in, uh, in the Reader's Theater. If you weren't here, you missed it. But Joseph of Arimathea. You may not know who acted Joseph of Arimathea, but I do. Other gospel writers tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was himself a member of the Jewish elite squad. He was in the Sanhedrin. Somebody just texted me in my pocket, and I'm really curious what they said about that. (laughs) Joseph was in the Sanhedrin, and these are the same dudes that had just condemned Jesus to death. The Sanhedrin would have understood that the bodies had to be buried before sundown uh, so that they could avoid disobeying the laws about the Sabbath. And they would have put Jesus' body in a common grave outside of the city. But Jesus died at an inconvenient time for that, like we already learned. Joseph wants to give Jesus a proper burial. He's a disciple of Jesus. So he leverages his rank among the Jewish leadership to request a meeting with Pilate. And he asked Pilate if he can bury Jesus in his own tomb that he had purchased. We learn in Matthew 27, one of the other gospel writers, that Joseph of Arimathea was known throughout that region for being a rich man. 
Did you know that 700 years earlier, before Jesus, Isaiah had prophetically penned these words about the burial of the coming Messiah? Isaiah 53 says this, and they made his grave with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. That right there is stunning in and of itself. But look back down at verse 42 of chapter 19, and we can see partly how Jesus orchestrated this whole thing. The Sabbath, like we've already mentioned, was by this time very close. Uh, Jews couldn't be caught doing work on the Sabbath. That was against the law. So they've got to find a quick and convenient solution to get Jesus' body to a burial place. And it just so happens that the quick solution is Jesus being buried in a rich man's tomb, which just so happened to be available because it was provided by a follower of Jesus, which just so happened to be geographically convenient to the cross when the Sabbath was so close at hand. Taking Jesus' body outside the city to a commoner's grave would have forced the Jews to disobey their Sabbath laws because dusk was at hand. If Jesus, in other words, if Jesus had died any sooner, there would have been time to take him to a commoner's grave and not be buried in the tomb of a rich man, making him incapable of fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus would die in the grave or be buried with a rich man in his grave. Jesus' control after his death makes him worthy of your belief. So Jesus' lungs stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. His blood stopped pumping. In the silence of death, he is somehow still pulling the strings to let the whole world know who he is. Only Jesus could control his gravesite from the grave. Praise God that Jesus was in control even as his earthly body slumped for the last time on that cross. So let's fast forward past the Sabbath on Saturday and then into Sunday morning. Jews were once again free to resume their normal activities with the Sabbath behind them. And so Mary Magdalene, a devoted follower of Jesus, gets up early to tend to Jesus' body, bringing spices to anoint and to preserve his body. Grief and loss still weighing heavy on Mary. She steps into the garden where Jesus has been laid to rest and makes her way toward his tomb. It's obvious from the text that none of Jesus' followers had any sort of expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead. None of them thought this was going to happen. Chapter 20, verse 9, tells us that on their way to the tomb, none of these friends of Jesus expected that tomb to be empty. It was the furthest thing from their minds. Somebody said, nobody expected nobody. Very clever. This fact lends credence to the resurrection story, that nobody expected nobody. The whole reason Mary was going back to Jesus' tomb was to finish the work of preparing his body for burial. Things had been cut short late on Friday afternoon, and now that the Sabbath was over, she was returning to finish the job for Jesus. As Mary walked through the silence of that garden in the early morning hours, the first hint that something is amiss as she's walking through there is that the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the grave. And her heart would have skipped a beat. Not in joy at all. Remember, resurrection is the furthest, furthest thing from her mind right now. Nobody expected nobody. She would have been panicking that someone had stolen the body, which, believe it or not, was a common practice in those days, and we won't get into all the reasons why, but it happened a lot. But this introduces our final point for this morning. Jesus' control over death makes him worthy of your belief. Before death, after death, and thankfully, over death. I borrowed this illustration from Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin, but there aren't really any spoilers here. But if you haven't read the Harry Potter books, some of this might be a little bit of new news to you, but no spoilers, Clinton, I promise. In the very last Harry Potter book, Harry visits his parents' grave for the first time. Maybe you can picture this. He's there with his friend Hermione in that dark cemetery. And Lily and James Potter were murdered by Voldemort when Harry was just a baby. The Potter's tombstone has their names and their dates and this, quote, uh, this quotation. It says this, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And here's an excerpt uh, from that part of the book. You can follow along with me on screen. 
Harry read the words slowly, as though he would only have one chance to take in their meaning. And he read the last of them aloud. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And a horrible thought came to him, and with it a kind of panic. Isn't that a death eater idea? Why is that there? It doesn't mean defeating death in the way that the death eaters mean it, Harry, said Hermione, her voice gentle. It means, you know, living beyond death, living after death. Maybe you didn't realize it when you read the book or when you saw the movie, but that's a quote from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. I won't tell you, for spoilers' sake, what happens after Hermione says that, but I will tell you what happens after Jesus' body is laid to rest. In short, Jesus showed his power over death, not by evading it, but by enduring it and trampling over it by coming back to life again. To prove that Jesus really had and has control over the grave, we would have to demonstrate, though, wouldn't we? We would have to demonstrate with a reasonable level of certainty that there really was an empty tomb, right? Isn't that like the crux of the whole thing? If we are honest with ourselves, though, this is a really difficult claim for us to believe, isn't it? An empty tomb? Come on now. There are so many who have been critical of the Bible. Maybe you're one of them. Like the late skeptic and atheist Christopher Hitchens, he once asked an audience in a debate, he said, imagine striking up a conversation with a stranger on a bus who nonchalantly remarks, you know, I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. Hitchens then quips that the most reasonable response after hearing someone say that in the seat next to you on the bus is to stand up and to move to a different seat on the bus, right? Who could blame them? I bet if I heard that claim on a bus, I wouldn't believe it, not even a little. So why should we believe John's claim? What is there here that should persuade us to believe him? Now, for most Christians, if you ask them why they believe that Jesus got up out of that grave, they'd say, because the Bible tells me so. And that's good. But that does not mean that they believe blindly without reason or reasonable evidence. Here are four quick pieces of evidence to consider that the resurrection was an actual historical event. Exhibit A, piece of evidence. The unlikely first eyewitness. It's subtle, and you wouldn't know this just by reading this, but John 20, verse 14, is some of the strongest supporting evidence in favor of the historicity of the empty tomb. A woman named Mary Magdalene was the first to meet the resurrected Christ. She was once a demon-possessed prostitute. And this was who Jesus decided to reveal himself to first? This is huge because, historically speaking, if these stories were fabricated or manipulated, none of the gospel writers would have chosen to include this detail that Mary Magdalene was the first eyewitness. Unless it was actually true, it would have made their claims less and not more believable. Let me tell you why. Unfortunately, the women of the day were not valued or looked highly upon in this society, like, at all. In fact, a woman's testimony wouldn't even hold up in a court of law. For example, first century, a first century man, Jewish historian, his name was Josephus, he lived right around the time of Jesus, he claimed that Jewish law expressed the following sentiment regarding the reliability of women. Here's what he said was the sentiment of the day. Let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. So if the gospel writers wanted to make a persuasive argument, they certainly would have included, would not have included Mary as the primary witness. Second century, Greek philosopher and skeptic Celis personified this prejudice, and unfortunately for him, it's recorded in history, he laughed at the idea that a weeping woman was the first witness of the resurrection. He said, after death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. <laughs> but who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deleted by the, deluded by the same sorcery. You guys, ladies, thought it was bad to be a woman in America today. Probably was worth, worse back then. Even so, remarkably, we find Jesus debuting his resurrection body to the most broken of disciples, a demonized prostitute, in the most unlikely of recipients, at least in that culture, a woman that no one would believe. 
The unflattering original eyewitness in John's account here lends credence to the resurrection story. Exhibit B, the unlikely teaching of the Jewish gospel writers. The unlikely teaching of the Jewish gospel writers. In his 1950s essay, What Are We to Make of Jesus? C.S. Lewis demonstrates how unlikely it would have been for the Jews to invent God become man. He says, this is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to the nation, which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another. It is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even of the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine at all easily. So that's the testimony of a Christian, C.S. Lewis. Here's the testimony of a non-Christian. His name is Bart Ehrman. He's an agnostic professor today uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. He writes, it is hard today to understand just how offensive the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been to most first century Jews. Since no one would have made up the idea of a crucified Messiah, Jesus must really have existed, must really have raised messianic expectations, and must really have been crucified. So those, these two guys come from opposite faith perspectives. One believes and one doesn't. They both agree. In order for these monotheistic Jews, one God Jews, to have embraced Jesus as Messiah, something absolutely incredible must have actually happened. Exhibit C the authority's inability to produce the body. One of the most stubborn historical facts is that the enemies of Jesus could not produce his dead body. The quickest way to discredit the new Jesus movement would have been to produce physical evidence that Jesus was still dead. That would have blown the whole thing up at the very beginning. It would have obliterated Christianity. The Romans knew this instinctively, which is why they stationed a whole bunch of guards right outside of Jesus' tomb. And still, his body was gone, and still, they couldn't produce it. This was no grave robbery. The Jewish and Roman authorities had all the necessary resources and motivation to track down the body. I mean, they were motivated to find this thing, to discredit all this junk that was going on. They wanted to deal the fatal blow to the resurrection claims, but they couldn't. Finding Jesus' body would have ended the whole debate. But there was no body because Jesus trampled over death and got up out of the tomb. How did Christianity grow so rapidly in the very place where Jesus was buried if it could be falsified so easily? Finally, Exhibit D, the unlikely transformation of the eyewitnesses. Apologist Neil Shenvey uh, helps me to see this. He quotes a German scholar. His name is Gerd Ludemann. Gerd denies the historicity of the resurrection, but listen to what he says. He says, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences, some kind of experiences, after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. He's saying that it's undeniable that they at least thought that they had an interaction, an encounter with the risen Christ. And the reason for this consensus, it's kind of alarming, actually. It's, it's the amount of violent persecution endured by the apostles for their belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Countless men and women were transformed from being a group of weak, dispirited followers into the courageous core of the first century church. Fearful, betraying Peter is violently crucified upside down for following Jesus. Would someone go to that length to propagate a lie? It's very doubtful. If he hadn't actually seen the living Christ, would he really be willing to die for some fairy tale he and his buddies had cooked up to create a religious movement? Legend has it that not too many weeks after the crucifixion, skeptical, doubting Thomas was imprisoned and flogged for boldly proclaiming a risen Christ. Are these the actions of scam artists? personalize this. Would you be willing to suffer and die for what you believe to just be a myth, a hoax that you created? Is doubtful. Or are these the actions of those who have been radically transformed by seeing something absolutely life-changing? A dead man walking. 
Given the suffering that the apostles faced, it is difficult to maintain that they believed the resurrection to be a hoax. What would their motivation have been if they knew for certain that they had intended, that they had invented the resurrection stories? Muslim author Riza Aslan, who obviously does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, he writes this. One could simply dismiss the resurrection as a lie and declare belief in the risen Jesus to be the product of a deluded mind. However, there is this nagging fact to consider. One after another of those who claimed to have witnessed the risen Jesus went to their own gruesome deaths, refusing to recant their testimony. That is not in itself unusual. Many zealous Jews died horribly for refusing to deny their beliefs, but these first followers of Jesus were not being asked to reject matters of faith based on events that took place centuries, if not millennia before. They were being asked to deny something that they themselves personally, directly encountered. When they began to face persecution and even death, why would they continue to affirm what they knew to be a lie? The best explanation is that they truly believed that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. The combined strength of all of these eyewitnesses to the resurrection is quite remarkable when you put all the pieces together. This is not just a couple of Jesus' closest confidants getting together and trying to salvage their master's reputation and see how far that they could advance this clever, coordinated conspiracy. No, hundreds of people from diverse backgrounds, most of whom were initially skeptical and doubtful and even hostile, claimed to have met Jesus after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. It is unreasonable to think that they were all lying or all deceived. And beyond the number of witnesses was the incredible transformation of these witnesses who saw Jesus alive. They each had transformative experiences with the risen Christ. So when you put all the pieces together, Jesus' identity is unquestionable. When you pair prophecy with the unquestionably empty tomb, Jesus' identity as the Son of God is unassailable, which leads us finally to our big idea for today. It's kind of like this portable thing that you can take with you that encapsulates all that we've addressed today. If Jesus alone has control over death, he alone can give you life, and you should give him yours. If Jesus alone has control over death, he alone can give you life and life eternal, and you should give him your life. If you're not a Christian today, I want to encourage you to seriously consider of the implications of my claims today. And I'll warn you ahead of time, Jesus' offer is offensively exclusive. He doesn't claim to be a way to heaven, a way back to God. Nope. The way, the truth, the life. So consider this. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it means he is God like he says he is. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it means that there really is a way to be in right relationship with God like he says there is. That's all amazing news to celebrate. We should hoot and holler about that, but it is not all celebratory. It's actually very sobering too. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it means that those who reject him will be held accountable just like he says they will. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it means that those who don't trust him will be judged for those sins by him, just like he says they will. A number of years ago, we were driving endless hours to a vacation in northern Michigan. I am no self-respecting parent at all, so my kids were watch watching movies in the back. Uh, they were watching Beauty and the Beast, the live-action film. Um, there were no Harry Potter spoilers, but there are going to be Beauty and the Beast spoilers. I apologize for that. It came out in 1991, so like we always say, that's on you at this point now, right? Um, so they are there watching the movie in the back, and my little Evie, who I will now owe a dollar to because I named her, she's maybe like three at the time or just, just short of three, she's watching that scene at the end right after the townsfolk and Gaston invade the castle to go kill the beast, right? And it's during that final climactic, heart-pumping scene where the beast grabs Gaston by the throat and he holds him out over the ledge of the castle and he's threatening to drop him and to end his life right there. Gaston deserved it, right? 
He was a punk. He was a pompous, narcissistic egomaniac. And of course, spoilers, most of us in here know already that the beast offers mercy and he pulls him back onto the ledge and he saves Gaston's life. But my little Evie, that girl is ruthless, man. I did not even know this about her until that one epic moment in our truck. So the beast has got Gaston like this by the neck out over the ledge. And I hear her whisper from the back of the truck, let him go. (laughs) We watched the movie again a couple of weeks ago and we laughed about it all over again. Friends, our sin held us by the throats. Like Gaston, we deserve to be let go, truly to plunge into hopeless death. But then, God's gift to humanity. Jesus steps in. At just the right time, Jesus came to die in my place and in your place. If we don't trust Jesus, we will be judged for our sins, just like Jesus says. One of, the t- one of two people will pay for your sins. Either you will, without faith, for all of eternity, or by faith, Jesus has already paid for your sins. That is good, good news. Jesus paid it all upon that cross. And one last implication for us here. If Jesus really rose, it means that those who die in unbelief will die an undying death, just like he says they will. Sobering. This is no trivial matter, though. Non-Christian friend. Listen to Rebecca McLaughlin here. She says, How bad is it to spend eternity apart from Jesus' love? It is worse than anything we could imagine. If Jesus is the things he claims to be, the source of love and life itself, not having Jesus is a fate much worse than death. But if we haven't put our trust in Jesus as our Lord to meet with him as judge of all the earth is a horrific prospect. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus warned. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. May you be considered in the few, friend. There is no third way set apart for those who think they're mostly decent people who don't really need a savior. There's only everlasting life with Jesus or eternal soul-destroying, hope-extinguished death. The Bible tells us that while Jesus hung on that cross, He was fixing this very problem that she describes here. And it's no small small problem. Every last one of us is under threat of being separated from God forever. That's why Jesus came, to, to bridge the gap between us and God and to help us draw near to God. So yes, the empty tomb, after all these years, is more influential than ever. It refuses to leave the stage of world attention. Look seriously at the grave and ponder with the angels in Luke 24. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen. We began today with the claim that reading stories is a gentle way to encounter the hardest truth that shadows mortal life. There are no happy endings. There's a sense in which that is true, isn't there? But reading the scriptures helps us come face to face, face to face with the reality of death. We're all going to die. It's a brutal, grievous, unshakable reality. Every last one of us in this room will breathe our last. We'll be placed into a wooden box and dropped into the dirt of the earth. But what we need to remember is that because of Jesus, death isn't the end. Death is just the key that unlocks the door to a new beginning. And Jesus' resurrection is proof of that. For all who trust him, he will welcome us into everlasting life with him. If Jesus has control over death, he can give you life, and you should give him yours. If you are ever going to close the deal with Jesus, friend, surely today is that day. Surely today is your day to receive his grace with the empty hands of faith. If you don't know what that means, you'd like to talk a little bit more about that, please track me down afterwards. Nothing could be more important. Christian friends, I hope that the coals of faith are burning a little hotter and brighter in your hearts this morning. Non-Christian friend, I pray that the match of faith has been lit. Mel is going to come up and pray for us now.
Let us pray. Father in heaven, existing with Jesus, your Son, and the Holy Spirit before time eternal, before you ever created the world, you had this plan in mind that Jesus would, that we would, because we would sin, he would need to suffer and die. And so that day was no surprise to you, no surprise to, to Jesus. Thank you for planning that for the thousands of years of promises in Scripture. Thank you for Jesus explaining it to the disciples so they would understand it later. For him explaining it to Cleopas and his friend on the walk that how from Moses and all the prophets, you had that planned. You had our lives planned as we learned today in, uh, in worship. You knew our days before we were knit and you know the number of them. There is nothing that surprises you. So Lord, let us trust in your plan that Jesus had to die and let us rejoice in the plan that it wasn't over on that day, that he rose again, that he's alive, that he knows us by name and he calls us to him. Help us to trust in, in all that you do in our lives, the difficulties that we face, nothing compared to what Christ and the early apostles faced. Help us to, to live our lives with full faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Help us to live lives that reflect what the apostles knew and, and the believers who saw Christ, that he did live and that he ascended into heaven and, and he was worth dying for. And we know that you probably just, you don't, it's not in most of our plan to die for you, but it's in all of our plan to live for you. So Lord, help us to live those lives that will reflect Jesus' death and life and his present ministry of, of sitting at your right hand, interceding for us. Lord, we give today to you in recognition of Jesus' uh, resurrection, knowing that one day we too will be res resurrected. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.